Professor Kapoor is a lawyer and the director of the Center for the Feminist Legal Research in New Delhi, and she also lectures at the Indian Society for International Law. She's also currently on the faculty of the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations. In the past, she has served as a senior gender advisor with the United Nations Mission in Nepal, and she has published or forthcoming two single-authored books and two co-authored books among them, are uh, a book that we're actually studying with our graduate students, or one of her, uh, I guess it's your third book, Erotic Justice, Law and the New Politics of Postcolonialism, which brings a postcolonial perspective to feminist legal studies and the study of human rights. And her forthcoming book, The Fear Factor, Gender, Belonging, and the Legal Regulation of the Migrant, which is coming uh, out this summer, I believe, right, from Routledge. Um, her book, Erotic Justice, for example, among uh, all of her works, focuses on the Indian subcontinent, sexual subaltern subjects, women, sexual minorities, Muslims, and transnational migrants. And she approaches law, feminist law, but also human rights law more broadly, feminist law, feminist approaches to human rights law, as a site of discursive engagement by a host of actors, state and non-state actors, including feminists, where competing understandings are in play concerning the West and the rest, or constructs of the West and the rest, nation, cultural authenticity, globalization, and resistance. She is unyielding in her critique, and I think persuasively so, of the co-optation of human rights discourse by colonial, imperial, and neoliberal projects and their propagation of gender and cultural essentialism. Her work exemplifies a critical engagement with identity-based paradigms, and I hope that this is how our conversation can continue about constructs of identity and embodiment um, as it relates to human rights discourse itself. And I'm also really interested in uh, the way in which you you address the convergence of humanitarian and human rights discourses, particularly with the proliferation of the victim or rhetorics of victimization in international human rights law. So please join me in welcoming Professor Ratna Kapoor. I sort of forgot my age there, <laughs> leaping up onto the stage. <laughs> I'm so sorry that conversation had to end. I think like with everyone else, I really wanted it to continue and be a part of it as well. Um, hopefully I can add to the oh, – uh, as a result of that fall, um, I hope I can read my talk now. Uh, <laughs> calamity after calamity at the moment, right? Um, I hope that I can add to some of the very provocative um, um, contributions we had this morning, and uh, I do intend this to be a provocative uh, presentation today. I want to ta- thank my, my hosts and, and uh, uh, Wendy, Amy, and Anne. Wendy in particular, thank you so much for inviting me here and for making it such a welcome, welcoming and hospitable uh, stay here. And I'm sorry I have to leave immediately after this, this talk, but I hope we will have time for a couple of questions after, before, I, uh, before I leave. See if these last. Okay, with one eye. Um, right. This is. Yeah, my lens has fallen out. Uh, are these like really light? There, I think there are two. There might be one seven five. Too strong? Uh, that's all right. I can read at least. <laughs> They're really strong, but I can I can read at least. Good. Um, 
the title of my talk is Wither Human Rights and Critical Reflection. My name is Khan. Is the latest overwritten, over-the-top Bollywood film from India that has just had its international release. Broadly, it broadly narrates the trials and challenges of a young autistic Muslim man, Rizwan Khan, in the post-9-11 world in America. While the film is not your typical candy-floss romance of Hindi cinema, Uh, It remains both excessive and melodramatic. Nevertheless, it does address perhaps one of the most important casualties of the post-9-11 world, the demonizing of the Muslim globally, and what appears to be the imminent collapse of human rights after the launch of the global war on terror. The film includes an epic journey by Khan across America in sort of Forrest Gump fashion to meet the President Sahib of the United States. So he can tell him, My name is Khan, and I am not a terrorist. The irony is that by simply uttering these words in a crowd awaiting the president's motorcade, our hero is tackled to the ground, arrested, and subsequently incarcerated and tortured without due process. Sadly, this part of the narrative is neither a Bollywood excess nor an aberration. Rizwan's narrative, I think, challenges whose voice is heard, legitimized, and remedied Uh, by human rights, and whose are delegitimized, excluded, excluded, and silenced. While the 9-11 attacks and dozens of other similar attacks in many parts of the world, including in my own country in November 2008, have fueled fantasies of revenge or retaliation, the desire to prioritize security over human rights, it has also more significantly forced at least some of us to pause and engage in more serious reflection as to why such violence continues to proliferate. What are the factors that have transformed young, well-off, and highly motivated men into killing machines? Why is it that around the world we are witnessing the emergence of this violent, angry young man and increasingly woman determined to wreak a path of destruction at the cost of his or her own life? And while these and other questions have to be answered at many levels, in many arenas, for the purpose of this conference, I ask, is the project of human rights in any way related to the production of these misguided human missiles? Has the spirit of rebellion, protest, and radicalism that once used to drive the human rights movement being displaced onto fueling these ticking human time bombs to orchestrate devastations, And if this spirit has withered from human rights, then wither human rights. We have witnessed an extraordinary proliferation of human rights law in the course of the 20th century and the beginning of this millennium. And contrary to popular belief, business is booming at the United Nations with its entourage of resolutions and declarations and conventions that now deal with a wide spectrum of abuses across the globe. Yet, this outward sense of progress, of something being done, of a social justice project being pursued in the name of human rights, is emerging as a somewhat disingenuous and illusory project. While there has been a a proliferation of laws in the name of human rights, the assumption that more law equals more equality and freedom, that human rights is an optimistic and hopeful pursuit, is quite mistaken. In fact, In my view, the proliferation of laws in the name of human rights serve at times to remind us how our good intentions, passions, and progressive swords have at times turned into boomerangs 
of how the expansion of human rights institutions cannot take place without cost and of how its promise of progress, emancipation and universalism has been exposed as myopic, exclusive and informed by global panics. In the contemporary period, these panics include uh, national security, panics over sexual morality, as well as cultural survival. What happened to that dissident and rebellious spirit of this endeavor? In today's talk, I want to respond to these challenging questions by offering some reflections on at least three aspects of the human rights mission. The first is to challenge the sort of teleological approach that normally characterizes the historical narrative of human rights as progressive, as moving in a linear direction towards a common noble goal, and instead highlight the messiness as well as at times the dirty history of this project. Secondly, I interrogate the assumption that human rights are universal. I address how human rights uh, the human rights endeavor has operated along the axis of inclusion and exclusion and challenge its professed emancipatory credentials. And thirdly, I examine the professionalization and institutionalization of the human rights apparatus and question the, the loss of the radical and rebellious spirit of the human rights movement. I argue that this spirit seems to have been displaced onto internet, uh, technology, TV campaigns, militant movements, and radical insurgencies. I conclude by making some tentative proposals as to how we can re-engage with human rights once its messy, exclusive dark side has been exposed. So let me turn to the more and many histories of human rights. We know that the formal establishment of human rights in the 20th century brought into being the possibility that states could no longer hide behind the fig leaf of sovereignty for violations committed against individuals in their, in their, uh, in their countries. It was a new form of interventionism that emboldened liberal, in, the in, liberal internationalists and his or her belief in the virtue of law and the principle of universality and marked, in fact, a step in the progress of human development. This belief in the transformative and progressive potential of human rights is, however, contingent on an assumption that we have moved forward, as a civilized world, have moved forward from a more primitive period into a more evolved form. And this progress, which has emanated, it seems, from the heart of Europe, has mostly been achieved except perhaps in some of the outposts of empire. It received a major impetus in the post-Cold War period in the form of liberal internationalism, which no longer faces any form of ideological resistance. And there's a profound faith that's placed in this justice-seeking project by well-intentioned activists, practitioners, and politicians that, have, that has come to characterize the practice in the field. In contrast to this faith lies an opposing position, one that views human rights as a corrosive tool that has eroded the legitimacy conferred or exercised through sovereignty and, in fact, threatens national and social cohesion. And this critique at times is coupled with a view that the, the, the era of historical progress and coherence has, in fact, ceased and that we've entered this new age of uncertainty and instability in the contemporary period, migration, single moms, bogus refugees, 
the absence of faith, homosexuality, and, of course, Islamic terrorism have in part brought about a demise of history and an end to progress. It argues that the legitimacy, security, and social cohesion reside in the glories of the past and its certainties, which must be retrieved and and, uh, combined with muscular assertions of sovereignty and claims to civilization. So in this instance, sovereignty needs to be closely guarded and the encroachments of human rights law arrested. Yet I think this story of human rights cannot be told simply in terms of those who oppose the project and those who support the agenda. It operates along a more complicated script. Human rights are a venture in justice that do not operate outside the systems of power and governance. They attach themselves to many disparate agendas and bids for power. For example, human rights have been and continue to be driven by current events and the leverage that they may provide in difficult negotiations. An added criteria, for example, when considering bids for the staging of the Olympic Games last time around from an emerging economy such as China, but not, I might add, when it comes to the choice of London. They are also pursued by reactionary agendas, such as that of the, of the Vatican, which has apologized, for, uh, apologized to women for any role the Catholic Church may have had in contributing to their historical oppression and has called for real equality in every area. Similarly, the Hindu right in my country has supported laws and human rights campaigns against trafficking, prostitution, and violence against women. While these groups oppose violence against women, they distinguish their positions from feminists by casting themselves as preservers of the family and, of course, reassert biological differences between men and women. Human rights has also emerged as a foreign policy device to rank states through the United States annual country reports and impose sanctions on so-called rogue states, such as Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran, or on those countries who do not comply with the anti-trafficking agenda of the U.S., which list also happens to include the rogue states. It becomes a bargaining chip in trade, aid, and diplomatic negotiations. It has been linked to the promotion of democracy defined in minimalist terms, that is, elections that are not brutally or demonstrably fraudulent, as in Egypt or Pakistan. Human rights have become integral to the arsenal of weapons that justify the bombardment, occupation, and toppling of governments, as in Afghanistan and Iraq. In the era of open markets and neoliberalism, they provide a way of doing business and making friends in the globalized market. It seems that human rights have proved of more value to its practitioners than its beneficiaries. What is clear from this is that the history of human rights has not moved in one direction inexorably towards perfection along a linear path. It is not a simple story about the liberation of the the oppressed through their acquisition of rights. It operates in the thicket of rules and institutions, imperial agendas, market interests, and state power. And it is only through what Salman Rushdie has described as the chutnification of history that we come to understand its dirty and uneven side. A progressive script can't account for this messiness. As one, uh, to invoke the words of one scholar, virtue does, not, virtue does not always move in the direction of the virtuous. 
Let me turn to my second point, the assumption about universality and that all humans are entitled to enjoy human rights without regard to distinction. This, in, uh, this idea of inclusion lies at the heart of liberal internationalism. Yet when we examine the Enlightenment project, the precursor to the human rights movement, it exposes the history of how liberalism's claim to universality and inclusion have always coexisted with exclusion and subordination. Let us recall an earlier moment when Europe was in the midst of struggling for liberty, equality, and freedom, Europe's others continued to be subjugated under the weight of colonialism and slavery. So while there is an assumption that liberty, equality, and freedom are indeed universal, these ideals seem to stumble and falter at the moment of their encounter with the unfamiliar or difference. These values meet with some of the same difficulties today in their encounters with difference and unfamiliarity. Universality is always accompanied by, again, what Denise de Silva evocatively describes as the other side of universality. While there is some concern over universalist claims of human rights in light of the harms and exclusions that have characterized its history, what's interesting is that there remains a deep commitment to this project and a faith in its universal application. The exclusions of the past are regarded as moments of just profound inconsistency with the principles of liberalism. For example, subordination of sex was deemed to be natural and the subject of sex was ignored by liberal political philosophers and and, uh, theories of justice. Yet, through feminism's role in unmasking inequalities in familial arrangements, the promise of liberalism for women was being brought about. In other words, exclusion was not intrinsic to the liberal philosophy. The failure simply lay in the operation of liberalism and, and following through on its socially radical potential. It is the result of manipulations that could be corrected through a gradual process of inclusion of these previously excluded groups. Independence from colonial rule, for example, which was fought and won through the invocation of civil and political rights, is is one of the examples to substantiate this position. But I argue that the search to recover universality as a central and integral feature of human rights remains an elusive one. Firstly, of course, we've already seen, its history really does belie such a promise. The standard to both explain and justify the exclusion of the non-European and non-Christian from the parameters of international uh, law and humanitarian law in the 19th century was based on the prevailing and uninterrogated assumption that European states were civilized, even Philosophers such as John Stuart Mill drew a line between those who were civilized and who deserved liberty and free speech and those, in quotes, backward states of society in which race itself may be considered to be in its non-age. Close quotes. The argument served to relegate the rest or the non-West to the primitive end of the civilizational spectrum. And moreover, this logic continues to inform human rights discourse in the contemporary period. A host of subjects continue to be denied uh, inclusion into the project or entitled to access only to the extent that they resemble the familiar subject of human rights discourse. Now here I want to just unpack at least three different ways in which the other has been addressed in relation to rights discourse. The first is obviously through assimilation. 
Uh, and the second is by either essentializing the difference and accommodating it as something that's unalterable or treating it as a threat, incarcerating it, or even at times eliminating it. Assimilation is based on the assumption that difference can be erased and the other tamed and assimilated through the, some form of cultural or racial strip. Examples of assimilation can be found in the new criteria that's being introduced in citizenship and nationality laws throughout the world, which are redrawing the line between belongingness and non-belongingness. These are explicit in the controversies surrounding the veil. In many parts of the world, but uh, I focus really on France more recently when Nicolas Sarkozy announced that there's no room for the burqa in France, that it's not a sign of religion, it's a sign of subservience. There are perhaps no more than a few hundred who wear this attire out of six million who reside in France. And it is, in fact, this logic that resulted recently in the case of a Moroccan woman who had been living in France since 2000, married to a French national with three children, all born in France and speaking French fluently, being denied citizenship on the grounds that the veil was incompatible with French values and the principle of laïcité or neutral secularism. It was the first time that, in fact, a court had judged someone's capacity to be assimilated on the basis of private religious practices, really taking laïcité into the home. The case was applauded, amongst others, by French feminists, who have emphatically declared the veil as a symbol of the submission of women. Now, hidden behind this debate is the question of the cultural specificity of France's policy of neutral secularism that features the perpetuation of Christian holidays in the Republican calendar, government funding for 900 private Catholic schools in contrast to one Muslim school, or the definition of the national culture as Christian. The vision of the Republican citizen is not a purely neutral concept. It requires assimilation into a culturally specific standard, while also reproducing some form of cultural essentialism. Women in the post-colonial world or in minority communities are portrayed as victims of their culture, which reinforces stereotyped and racist representations of that culture and privileges the culture of the West or the majority community. It's a representation that also, in my view, fuels the conceit of some feminist and human rights interventions in the lives of the native subject, which are reminiscent of some form of imperial intervention that represented the Eastern woman or subaltern woman as a victim uh, of a backward and uncivilized culture. And it does seem that within this logic, no matter how much the other struggles to mimic uh, the legitimate subject, she remains, to use Homi Baba's words, at most almost quite, uh, almost white, but not quite. The second approach is through reinforcing the difference, treating the other as naturally incapable of making decisions, culturally and morally inferior, like the formal colonial subject, black person or woman, and hence considered in need of state protection or rescue. For example, in the context of violence against women campaigns, states as well as NGOs have frequently promoted human rights interventions based on assumptions about women, and especially in the third world, as perpetually in a state of victimization and abuse. No doubt these campaigns have had some extremely important and uh, beneficial consequences for women, uh, translating specific 
violence experienced by them into human rights discourse. But there are some serious limitations. As several feminist scholars have argued, an exclusive reliance on the victim subject to make claims for rights and women's empowerment is based on gender essentialism and overgeneralized claims about women. Gender essentialism does promote, uh, remain present in contemporary uh, uh, issues involving women's human rights, especially I want to focus on the issue of anti-trafficking initiati- initiatives. And it's astonishing to me that these initiatives have been adopted or enacted at the international uh, and domestic level at an extraordinary rate over the past three years. Normally, international law and human rights law does not move as fast, this fast. Um, In the name of protecting women's rights, these initiatives are invariably, however, based on assumptions, especially, again, uh, of women in the developing world as victims, infantile, and incapable of decision-making. And these assumptions, in turn, have invited extremely highly protectionist legislation and at times even justified protective detention of the victim and intervention strategies that once again reinforce gender and cultural stereotypes. And a recent example that I've used uh, many times, but I think it's a very effective one, is of uh, a case that was documented by the National Rapporteur uh, on Trafficking in Nepal, and this is during the period of time I was there. Um, It it was concerned a busload of 23 Nepali women who were headed from uh, a particular location in Nepal to New Delhi to catch flights out to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and this bus was intercepted by the Indo, on the Indo-Nepal border by the border police with the help of a Nepali anti-trafficking NGO, supported by huge funding from European donors and USAID. The NGO contended that the women were predominantly minors and were being trafficked for prostitution. The women, on the other hand, argued that they had chosen to migrate abroad because in Nepal there were no jobs. Due to the decade-long civil conflict and the collapse of the tourist industry, which generates most employment for, uh, for Nepalis, now these young women sought migration to the Middle East as a way out of a difficult situation, but profiled as potential victims of trafficking and intercepted on suspicion in a preemptive operation, the busload was rescued and taken to a shelter of the NGO. And upon inquiry, it was discovered that only one of the women was a minor. She was 17 years old. The rest of the women were consenting migrants who had labor contracts and air tickets and fully aware, were fully aware of the prospective nature of their uh, employment in the Middle East. Although the NGO subsequently acknowledged that the interception was a mistake, the women suffered both economic loss, unable to catch the flights that they had fully paid up, as well as, of course, the loss of a job opportunity, for which none was compensated. Finally, there's the response that regards the other as completely outside of Western liberal democracy or outside of the human rights framework. They're defined as a threat to the nation-state as backward and and dangerous. We find, of course, this response uh, uh, in the arrival of the non-West onto the shores of the West. Today, migrants are being addressed implicitly through more stringent immigration, anti-trafficking, anti-terror laws. 
And such initiatives, of course, haven't curtailed migration, but instead have led to the production of a clandestine migrant mobility regime to to facilitate these irregular movements. They also promote, of course, the fear factor, these kinds of interventions, and fail to address the reasons behind the global flows of people moving across borders. What's interesting is that the legal interventions are, in fact, producing a paradox where the security of the migrant subject is perhaps less threatened by people smugglers and traffickers than they are by the current international system of human rights protection offered to these people. These arrivals, of course, are joining a host of subjects who are denied human rights protections as they are cast in opposition to such values and protections. And today, this somewhat bloated subject includes the Islamic who is cast as a threat to the nation state, the homosexual who is destroying civilization, the family uh, who is destroying civilization, family, and faith as we know it, the sex worker with her contaminating agenda, and, of course, the migrant subject. If all of these responses to the other are not confined to tyrannical dictatorships or oppressive fundamentalisms, they're located in the heartland of the homeland, in the epicenter of the liberal democratic state. The threat they pose per se justifies the creation of new categories, such as unlawful non-citizens and the explicit policy of incarceration of asylum seekers in Australia or enemy combatants, by the United States in Guantanamo, or evildoers in the elusive or misguided war on terror. The specter of the savage then remains present in the contemporary moment, and in all of these instances, we are declaring new non-humans or lesser humans, as well as superhumans. So the core of my argument here is that this, this tradition from which human rights has emerged not only incorporates arguments about freedom and equal worth, but it also incorporates arguments about civilization, cultural backwardness, racial and religious superiority. And human rights remain structured by this tradition. This dark side, I would argue, is in fact intrinsic to human rights rather than just indicative uh, of a project that is merely broken and can be glued back together again. Now in my third point, I want to really talk a tiny bit about the professionalization of the movement. As David Kennedy has argued in the context of humanitarians, the movement is no longer made up of dissidents, campaigners, and protesters, who, but these these, these humanitarians have come to share a common vocabulary with governments, armies, and human rights activists. They're now fully involved in the planning and conduct of war, bond together in the belief in the pursuit of civilization and a shared common progressive agenda. And this shift from this sort of idealist to more realist or pragmatist amongst human humanitarianists humanitarians is replicated in the human rights community, which has really come to also walk the corridors of power. The emergence of this new class of internationals is present and very conspicuous in my part of the world. Yet it's not evident that this coupling has really produced greater freedom or emancipation for the oppressed or really resulted in any better scrutiny over the exercise of power. At one level, the work of human rights has become just another job opportunity with extraordinary perks, especially in the outposts of empire. 
As one commentator has remarked, the most discernible effect of human rights of the Human Rights Alliance with power and nation building is the creation of a body of administrators. In quotes, Kabul is one of the few places in, in the world where a bright spark just out of college can end up in a job that comes with a servant and a driver. In my own experiences as a senior gender advisor at the UN mission in Nepal, while I felt an urge, really genuine, sincere urge amongst internationals present in Nepal to do good, their behavior and functioning was frequently comparable to that of a colonial administrator. The distinctions between Nepali staff and the internationals, whites and blacks, soft and hard issues, reproduced the priorities and dictators of empire. While these operations may be distinct from those of occupying forces or colonizing missions, when the native is treated in a way that sets up a relationship of dominance and subordination or superiority and inferiority, then there's really little that distinguishes these endeavors regardless of their different initial intentions. The question then still remains to be answered here is what has become of that radical and rebellious spirit of the project? The do-gooders who seem to have missed the power boat, have they become relics of the past, mere hecklers to power? I can trace at least two distinct shifts here, one that is quite benign and the other which is dark and at times even malevolent. The dissident spirit of human rights has partly coupled with the market and the politics of internet and human rights and TV campaigns, uh, some of which you've spoken about in the morning. And it seems to exist, at least what I've seen, in the audiences of Live 8 and YouTube bands, demanding the governments, for example, make poverty history, write off the African debt, and increase aid levels. The tears and sympathy of suffering Africans dominating the screens of global elites across the world interspersed with images of, say, a sexy Madonna, Pink Floyd, or one aging Beatle. This combination of hedonism and good conscience has been used to make a moral call. While TV eliminates simultaneously, TV and technology, I think, simultaneously eliminates the public character of protests. It led even someone like Gordon Brown to remark that the G8 would be happy to participate in the action against them. (laughs) At, At the same time, those who are at the receiving end of human rights violations aren't simply waiting around to be rescued by their global feminist sisters, great white Christian savior, or Madonna. This marks really the second shift. The radicalism that was at one time assumed to be a feature of human rights in some instances, has been displaced onto insurgencies and resistance movements, all transformative, though not necessarily progressive. The pursuit of justice in such instances is based on a vengeful agenda by large masses of youth who do not see necessarily a future for themselves, who may be feeling excluded from rights. Such part pursuits include, until recently, the Tamil Tigers' self-determination movement in Sri Lanka, the Maoist insurgency in Nepal, or the Wahhabism of Al-Qaeda. Sometimes the movement seeks to be included in the project of rights and the glo- or the global market. It's often hard to know which one. And sometimes they seek to completely restructure society, for instance, through religious nationalism or economic restructuring. And these movements are not the products of evil non-humans, despite the fact that they may commit innumerable human rights violations in the course of their struggles. They emerge partly as a result of exclusions produced in and through human rights discourse. 
And this aspect, I think, can be easily obscured if we continue to set up these movements in opposition to human rights. Today, when a Muslim becomes defined as the enemy in the global war on terror, he or she has only two options, to assimilate through some form of cultural uh, strip or to be constantly fearful of incarceration, interrogation, elimination. While a liberal response may appeal to the global community to embrace and tolerate religious difference, such an appeal obscures at the same time how these very same states are able to export the dark side of the movement. For example, in their violent treatment of the other, in particular the Muslim, by shock and awe, or prisoner abuse, or incarceration in the homeland without due process, as illustrated in uh, My Name is Khan. Powerful countries such as the U.S. can use their muscular might uh, and their monetary strengths to export the dark side and send it to places like Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, or Bagram. The ability, though, of some dem- democratic nations to export the dark side shouldn't deflect attention to the con- how the conditions of disorder and instability are produced in and through the discourse of rights, which sets out the terms of inclusion and exclusion. My argument really does uh, illustrate how we need to seriously address the role of rights discourse and liberal values in producing these human bombs. So I want to end here in um, setting out what I think might be some of my proposals. I don't want to come across as this rejection, of taking a rejection to stand on human rights, uh, nor do I want to be a, an apologist for a realist position on human rights. And of course, least of all, do I want to sound like this third world fundamentalist who rejects human rights as Western rights. We cannot not want human rights. And despite all we know about the inadequacies of human rights, it seems that we continue to engage with it or appeal to it as so much political hope has been invested in this project. Despite the critiques, it's this attitude, it seems to me, is, it's an approach that's been characterized by, yes, I know, but politics. The critique seems to be suspended out of concern that it will create anxiety and perhaps even nihilism. But I think the, the equation of critique with pessimism and progress with optimism is quite mistaken. Questioning human rights doesn't mean we side with the inhuman, anti-human, or evil. So coming to my final point, is it possible to imagine a more liberating human rights scheme? Is there a mode of thinking where the history of human rights is not seen as this unilinear march through time from good to better to still better, where all dichotomies are absent? And what indeed is the anatomy of such a thought? I only have very tentative proposals at this stage. It seems to me that the survival of human rights resides in the performance of at least six exercises. Firstly, it is important to recognize that human rights are a site of power and tool of governance. It is the power in the hands of those who use it that needs to be understood, not simply its ability or lack of ability to transform transform people's lives, bring about change or liberation. Secondly, the human rights tradition needs to turn the gaze back on itself and ask how it has been implicated in partly creating some of the messiness in the world today. What is the role of this mission based on the values of liberal thought in producing hatred, animosities, as well as the human bombs that, we keep, that keep exploding with disturbing regularity? 
Thirdly, we need to move beyond the debates between the universal character of human rights and their historical particularity, which I just think is such a circular and false kind of argument, and it, you know, it's not very productive. And there's already a vast literature in many non-Western metaphysical and philosophical traditions which reconcile the particular with the universal. Fourthly, there's a need to be to, uh, for a reorientation in human rights scholarship and education. Human rights advocates, including feminist scholarship, have failed to adequately center and interrogate the colonial trappings and hegemonic underpinnings of the project and fre- frequently ignore uh, or exclude the non-West from the conversation. I come from the post-colonial context of India, where law and the liberal project on which it has been based have had a troubled reception from their very introduction into the post-colonial world. It was a mechanism of power enforced on the native to serve the regulatory interests of the colonial state. This history doesn't emerge from the Enlightenment. It emerges from the colonial encounter. Rights have not been received as unequivocally as a liberating and emancipating tool, nor has inclusion been regarded as the automatic antidote to subordination. I think this double consciousness um, that this understanding produces accepts the value, perhaps, of human rights without celebrating the processes that justified imperial intervention in the past and continue to do so. A fifth and related exercise is to search for and spell out the codes of accountability such that the harm done is not merely explained away in terms of well-intentioned undertakings gone wrong or hijacked by the neoconservatives or the wrong people. Such codes must ensure that the human rights practitioner and advocate doesn't forfeit her responsibility as an architect of projects which result in disastrous outcomes. Right? Where the idea, where the loss of thousands of lives uh, cannot be merely shirked off as collateral damage. And so I think there's a challenge here to figure out what the ingredients of such a code of accountability might be, which binds the mission from the moment a project is imagined to that of its fruition. And then the final exercise is both a task and a tool to seriously look for and learn from other traditions which raise these questions and others which we perhaps cannot even imagine yet, and to examine paradigms that offer tools to answer these questions. Let me be clear here. I don't intend to do a sort of holier-than-thou Bollywood jig or to eulogize the values of the non-West over the West, reproducing the very binaries I've critiqued. But located in India, what is evident to me and many others is that India... And Indians are making a grand entry onto the global stage, either in their new Toyota Innovas or uh, Booker Prizes or through the pelvic thrust and hip gyrations of Bollywood cinema, which has an audience of 3.8 billion people. And what's important for me to state here is that India is headed precisely on that route to modernity, which I think has created the mess that we are in. Uh, and that we're trying to find a way out of. And this mess won't be repaired through her imminent ratification of the Hague Conventions or through her joining of the International Criminal Court. So neither India nor indeed, I think, any society's march uh, onto the global stage of progress 
uh, an embrace of the market can result in freedom and liberation, which after all was the, the dream of the human rights project. But here, I do think that the subcontinent is also home to some extraordinary philosophical and intellectual traditions. And I focus on the subcontinent simply because that's my home. Unfortunately, however, philosophical traditions other than from the West have invariably been regarded as esoteric, exotic, or religious. Uh, This view, I think, fails to recognize the deeply religious tone of intellectuals in Western traditions or appreciate the significant distinction made in non-Western traditions between philosophy and religion. Some of these traditions are immersed in systems of logic, inference, dialectics that can be traced from well before the Buddha, who, as many of you know, was an agnostic, to Omerto Sen, who is the Nobel laureate in economics. Sen traces the tradition of dialectics and debate and even skepticism in his book, The Argumentative Indian, which he concludes illustrates two truths. One, that everything is open to question, and two, that Indians are a loquacious people, that we don't shut up. I am coming to the end of this, because I know we have... We have very little time. And like while these traditions are in no way homogenous, I do think they possess three distinct features. First, there isn't a fear of critiquing or questioning metaphysics and epistemology, the very basis from which knowledge proceeds. It's not a renegade, but in fact an integral feature of these traditions. And uh, uh, in fact, sometimes the challenges to epistemological issues in the West have been castigated as like the ravings of the postmodern, post-enlightenment intellectual. But let me be clear, we've been there and we've done that. A second distinction is that the idea that human emancipation lies in the conception of the subject is not just based on this individual rational subject. Um, and I think there's the work of Sabah Mahmood, if some of you are familiar with it, who discusses an alternative notion of the subject that cannot be captured by the liberal imaginary. Uh, and here she's speaking primarily about the subject who wears the veil and the relationship between the veil and her inner disposition. Uh, I can't elaborate on that at this point because of time constraints. But finally, there is, and I think this is really important, there is a conceptualization of time that's not captured by the progressive narrative and teleology. It shifts away from any notion of progress and a sense of moving forward from a dark, more primitive period that's been the hallmark of liberal thought. Instead, it recognizes that there's constant change and the, the relationship between Time and space is critical. There is no linearity here. Such an exercise entails constant reflection, critique, debating the metaphysical grounds on which our arguments are based without fear of nihilism resulting from such engagement. And while there's a need to really elaborate on each of these features, um, I think I'm hoping that this is a way to begin a conversation of new newly imagining the very basis of our humanity. And it cannot, the story of human rights cannot be told in terms of um, the dichotomies of good and evil, heroes and villains, winners and losers. We cannot simply think about winning or recapturing the terrain of human rights and restoring it to some kind of pristine purity. 
Um, what's important here, I think, is to center excluded subjects and excluded histories and excluded philosophies, such as that of Rizwan Khan, and expose how human rights is a regulating and disciplining ter- terrain, and force ourselves to rethink of what we mean by the terms imagine, uh, emancipation and freedom. Ultimately, I'm hoping that this effort is to put some life back into a project that's in desperate need of resuscitation and to give this body a soul and to stage the very sorely needed intellectual insurrection that I think the global contemporary moment demands. Thank you. Yeah. No, I don't think I was actually sort of thinking that the two are connected. And I sort of just alluded a little bit to both Andrew and Sam's um, talk. Is I, I think my concern is that is that the new version of hum, doing human rights, especially um, Sam, what you were talking about, you know, sort of documenting through video and visuals. I think it's important, but I'm not sure then where the accountability lies there. And I also worry about, I remember in Sri Lanka when um, the attacks were going on in the Northeast, everybody was using their cell phones, texting one another. And I was sitting there thinking, and for what purpose? What, what is the point of that? Where does it take you? And I think you also mentioned when we photographed the monks in, in uh, did, did the, the videos of the monks in, uh, in Burma, uh, again, there's like lots of people who sign on to that online petition and then in a week it's all gone. So I wonder where is that taking us? Is, if this is the new direction, what is the direction exactly? Where is it going? And I, I'm sort of slightly concerned about that. Uh, it's a little distinct from, I think, Andrew, you know, and your... Um, sorry, this is giving me the platform to respond to you guys a tiny bit, so I hope that's all right. Um, you know, is that uh, I, it was interesting to me for, you know, your talk was very interesting uh, because I think you're anti-technology a tiny little bit. Um, maybe not, okay. But you, um, you, you, you seem to sort of think it might su- supplant, you know, hum- human intervention and the human story. And I think that's very important. But when you use the Sri Lanka example, I was sitting there thinking, well, the, this government would never have heard the testimonies of these humans uh, who were uh, attacked during the, the, 
elimination of the Tamil Tigers. Um, and this kind of footage was, in fact, quite essential. This sort of satellite uh, interventions was quite essential. It really helped to validate some of their stories. So I was kind of concerned that, you know, it also matters which government's in play here and who won't allow their people to speak or uses, um, you know, their testimonies for purposes that are not necessarily benevolent. So I think uh, it's interesting to see both of you in terms of your interventions. I guess the big question is, where is it really taking us? Is it taking us in a new direction? Is it really helping the human rights movement? Is it addressing some of the problems that I've sort of tried to articulate here or not? Um, I am worried about, uh, you know, the big picture of human rights. Yes. Well, I think at the beginning I sort of set out how it's used to attaches itself to dis- disparate agendas, and of course the market is one of them. And in the context of a country like India, what's really interesting is that I think this is happening in many countries, but that the neoliberal project is being linked to uh, the notion of more freedom, right? And and freedom based on uh, from pro- uh, proliferating people's rights to choose. You know, the consumer subject, the consumer citizen is becoming centered, and that seems to be the new global subject. Um, Who is free? Who is emancipated? This is the market coming in and telling us, well, how can we think about freedom and emancipation? Of course, we all have deep concerns about that. Again, I think, as I mentioned, I think that's very limited. That's not necessarily going to take you in the direction that you want to go in terms of human emancipation. Uh, And that's why I think the deeper philosophical question, my paper takes a, a bit of a turn, the deeper philosophical question needs to be asked, and we shouldn't be fearful of asking it. It doesn't mean disengagement from human rights. It means continuous engagement, but engaging with human rights without this idea, it's leading to liberation and freedom, of always being wary of the agendas that are attaching to that project, whether it's the market or it's, in my context, the Hindu right as well, uh, whether it's a certain type of feminist project, you know, um, a, a sort of more violence against women-focused project. I mean, we have to be wary of how many players there are using this agenda. Uh, I think it is important. That's an important way to strategize and intervene if we understand that it's just not human rights as a noble cause anymore. I'm not sure it ever was that, quite honestly. So I just bring in the market there just as one of the uh, the, the sort of ways in which human rights can be advanced, uh, you know, attached and actually 
uh, reincarnated in a very different guise through the market. Here in India, we'd see satellite TV is something that's been introduced through the market. And so there's a possibility now of new programs that talk about the neoliberal subject as a consumer and freer and, you know, more emancipated women because, you know, they have washing machines available to them. They don't have to uh, do hand wash. You know, that kind of subjectivity is being constructed through the through the introduction of satellite broadcasting, which I think is very much part of uh, market-driven. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things, I mean, maybe building on that a little bit, but, but not just within thinking of capitalism, but thinking of capitalism as, a, as not just a uh, basis of markets uh, and transactions, but as, as a, mo- a mode of governance or a mode of rule. Um, and I, I felt very much part of what I, how I was interpreting what you were saying, and maybe on this a little bit is, is I felt what you were tracing out at the beginning very much setting up what you, what you then get to at the end is thinking through um, how human rights as a discourse becomes um, I mean aside from its history uh, and its origins that you point to as well it at the same time becomes part of a, a mode of rule in itself mm-hmm. it becomes a part of an idiom of power yes. that, that gets detached from whatever good intentions might be it I, I, I think I think that's that's right, and and I think I use that in my third example of those who are considered outside of the human rights terrain, you know, are set up in opposition to that, uh, and I think it's very important. That's why I start off with you know um, that example as um, uh, trying to talk about how human rights is implicated in producing that outsider that one who feels threatened, who is regarded as dangerous, who becomes a human bomb. I think it is important to see uh, how human rights decides how people ought to behave and how people, what people ought to you know, conform to or assimilate to, and how it then creates, as I said, a hierarchy of, of human beings about, you know, to the point where there are those who are just not considered to be either human or are uh, considered to be in opposition to some kind of form of civilization that human rights represents. I mean, I, I sort of agree with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. We have time for one more. One more? Okay. Um, I think for me, the, what you kind of tapped on, coming from law, yeah. which I think is really interesting, which yeah. is that to create more laws does not really create more human rights. And I, I mean, I kind of, that's really interesting. Like, so where, how do we then debate this crisis of law? And, and how do we activate that? In, as a discipline in itself, mm-hmm. also um, maybe kind of glimpsing at other models of, of ethics that exists outside of the Western concept of law. I think that, I mean, I just to reinforce your point, I think absolutely that is the position, and especially as I touched upon what the history of legal intervention has been in a post-colonial country. You cannot have that kind of faith produced today in Law and there's the proliferation of rule of law projects through funders, World Bank and other funders, throughout the South Asian, Southeast Asia. But really, there's such a skepticism around this, and also that, okay, we know how we can use law as a tool of power and exclusion and subordination. You know, that is the mentality, that is the way it's been received, that is the history. Right? So it's not going to work in the way it's been sort of planted over there, with the intentions with which it's been planted over there. Well, thank you again.